house. No, the right no, house. I didn't get We want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada Water. seem to be pregnant. Congratulations. Thanks, but I'm not so happy about it like everybody else might be. I'm having the baby, and that's that. Un-congratulations. Un-thank you. The biggest mystery about Jenna Hunterson is how a girl this great... You should open your own pie shop. Yeah! Somewhere where they could really use a little pie shop, like Europe or New Jersey. Ended up with a life like this. Hello and welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast that will outrun you to safety if it's the last thing we do. Every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we are here to perform the autopsy. I'm your host, Joe Reed. I'm here, as always, with my marshmallow mermaid pie, Chris File. Hello, Chris. <laughs> I've been called all three of those things separately, but never together. <laughs> Uh, welcome. We've, uh, we've taken been a, took a week off. It's been a minute since <laughs> we took recorded. multiple weeks off because you were on vacation. Yes. I'm about to be on vacation. So we had a massive cram se- session yes. uh, a few weeks ago. We're having another one this another weekend. Another one this weekend. Yes. And then we'll be back to normal. <laughs> Such as it is. Such as normal is on this podcast. But yes, we are here this week. Just the two of us. We are going to talk about... The 2007 movie Waitress, a film that I saw twice in theaters back in 2007, actually. Um, I saw it when it came to Buffalo. This was just before I moved to New York City. I saw it when it came to Buffalo. And then I saw it when um, I had taken a trip to Portland to visit cousins out in Portland. And we went and saw this at one of their movie theaters that served food and beers which was like the first time i had ever been to such a such a movie theater because it was portland and it was very sort of like uh cutting edge in terms of uh you know uh, arts artsy fartsy uh experience so that was fun i was i was mesmerized by that whole concept of just like they'll just bring you a beer in your seat this is crazy and now that's sort of and that beer is 17 dollars um you know Probably not that much back then, but, like, probably would be now. Um, But yes. And so, like, I was definitely super into Waitress back then. And it was an interesting experience watching it again now. Uh, What is this? 16 years later. God, I mean, the the obvious comment to make about this, seeing this in a dine-in type of theater, Mm -hmm. is the food that they you probably were wishing they were serving you was pie. Yeah, they didn't have desserts. It was basically, you know, uh, burgers and fries. I think we all got like a plate of like loaded fries or something like that. And uh, and the beers. But yes, this would have been a perfect movie. I remember when I saw the musical Waitress on Broadway, uh, one of the gimmicks they had early on, I don't know how long into its run this lasted, but they were like, first of all, they like pumped like freshly baked pie scent you're out in the lobby. <laughs> so you walked in and you're just like, oh my God, this smells delicious. I it think smells they did like this the whole run, though. And then you got little like jar pie. You know what I mean? Like in a little tiny little like mini uh, mason jar kind of a thing. They gave you, you got hit your selection of like one of two like types of pies. I, you, I had it. I think I finally 
in one of the moves uh, uh, let go of it. But I had my you little not pie jar. The pie, oh, the pie jar. The jar. <laughs> Jesus. No, I didn't, I didn't keep the pie. It's probably not biodegradable pie. I'm not insane. Like, it probably had preservatives that would have kept the pie, but... No. <laughs> no, I ate the goddamn pie in the room. Like, I enjoyed that goddamn pie. Um, yes, so that was... Um, a fun experience to to be had. You, what is your experience with Waitress? Did you see it in the theaters? Then did you see the musical? Did see it in theaters. I know the music of the musical. Have not seen it live. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I love this movie. This movie still rocks. Um, it's very I, cute. It's very very cute. I feel like there's a certain level of this movie that it wouldn't be as re- well received today, especially in the way that it came mm-hmm. out you know this is a comedy that launched at sundance but i mean i think this is a good uh example this is like a top tier version of that it we'll talk about the sundance because this is a really interesting sundance yeah it, it's also the sundance the year after little miss sunshine which also it raised was, the expectations pretty significantly for sundance that year. right it's and this was also bought by Searchlight, as Little mm-hmm. Miss Sunshine was. Mm-hmm. I don't. I, I mean, like this. It, it there's also the tragedy behind yeah, this. We'll movie talk about too, that for sure. That we'll definitely talk about. That is was such a bummer then, and is still mm-hmm. such a bummer now. I forget the timeline of it. Of if it happened before this movie was released into theaters, I believe. Oh, it did. she. So Adrian Shelley. Uh, uh, was sadly uh, murdered uh, in November of 2006. It was after Sundance had made the choice to select her movie, but before she was notified of that. So she right. was at that moment sort of awaiting notification for whether Waitress would be accepted into Sundance. Um, uh, so the premiere of the movie at Sundance was a little over two months after she had died. And so the purchase of the movie didn't happen until Sundance. So um, it was, it was released the following spring. So Adrian Shelley was, uh, was gone by the time this movie premiered at Sundance. And um, I guess we should probably just like get that out of the way maybe now, just because we want to, you know, it's we'll just wanna... so sad because she wrote and directed this movie and is, uh, delivers a supporting performance in this movie where it's like, it, it just could not be any more of a home run. She's incredibly funny in the movie. The movie yeah. itself is incredibly funny. She would have gone on to do more movies like this or not like this, but like certainly with a distinct point of view, because I think her comedic sensibility is incredibly sweet, but also has this biting, like cutting groundedness to it that like is, you know, very charming and winning. And it's just like, it, it just kind of casts an air of sadness around the movie because the movie is so like good at being Sweet. uplifting. Yes. You know? Well, and the thing, so Adrian Shelley was uh, sort of ensconced in the independent film, uh, you know, ether of the 1980s and early 90s, especially. And in a very sort of like idiosyncratic niche, she was a big player in the films of Hal Hartley, mm-hmm. who's I don't think I've ever seen a Hal Hartley movie, actually, but like his movies were definitely like a big presence around that time. Um, never really crested into commercial 
appeal. And so I feel like Adrian Shelley herself... This is herself, like about as commercial as like uh, how 100%. sensibility would be. Because this is a fairly like st- mainstream movie or at least an accessible movie. Yeah. Like, it, I mean, the fact that it played Buffalo was like, would be, tells you all that you need to know about like um, how mainstream it got. Because we didn't get the really, really sort of like significantly indie things. But um, so uh, Adrian Shelley was sort of a New Yorker through and through she had been like she had when she was younger she had done like stage door manor and whatever and sort of came up through that uh like i said into the independent films of uh hal hartley she had she lived in new york with her husband and her young daughter her daughter i believe is the girl who plays um jenna's daughter in the final scene where she's like walking down the road uh the sort of like toddler age daughter um and then also had this office that she worked in, which was essentially just like an apartment in Greenwich Village. I remember when I was sort of in my first few years in New York City, uh, a friend of mine, my friend David, who is also uh, sadly no longer with us, um, sort of like took me on a walking tour of the West Village. That was the first time I'd ever been to Julius. He sort of like introduced me to like Julius, which is this uh, now landmark bar in the West Village. But he was sort of like pointing around all the like the sights and sound of the West Village. And one of the things he was looking, that's the building where Adrian Shelley was murdered. And um, it's sort of, you know, part of the, you know, the firmament there a little bit anyway. So she was working out of her office and she was murdered by uh, somebody who was uh, working essentially construction in that building. And the story sort of changed at the very first. She was found sort of hanging from a shower rod. And so that was why people thought it was a suicide at first. Her family refused to accept that uh, for, uh, you know, myriad reasons. And they pressed the police to investigate and eventually... And the story has changed a couple of times. The first version of it, the one that sort of like stuck with me because it was so sordid, was the that Adrian had sort of hollered at these construction workers for making too much noise. And one of the guys threw a wrench at her. And then for fear that she would then call the cops on him, uh, followed her up into her apartment and murdered her. And then that story changed after further investigation and it uh, the then became sort of a straight up robbery this guy had gone into mm-hmm. her apartment to rob her she had uh, walked in on him and he killed her and i believe that is now what is currently accepted as the most likely uh, thing that happened but anyway um for years and years and years i was like i'm never yelling at anybody for making too much noise because i'm not going to suffer uh, a similar fate but anyway it's a it's a really sort of sordid tale and and you know terrifying and horrifying but like a horrible way for anybody to die but especially you know this artist who people knew and and who had you know an emotional attachment to her through her work it's um it's someone who is known as you know a light and yeah exactly go in such kind of a dark way and then so sundance 2007 uh, they bring Waitress to the festival, and the premiere of it was this, you know, they had spoken at the premiere, p- uh, producers of the movie, and her husband was there, talked about how they didn't want the premiere to be 
like a wake. They wanted to have a more sort of celebratory atmosphere, which obviously was, you know, maybe easier said than done. But I think, you know, you get, you hear quotes from people who were there, Carrie Russell and such, just sort of talking about the bittersweetness of this, you know, this Sundance placement that Adrian Shelley was really hoping to get for her movie and and how surreal it was to be there with the movie and for it to have her not be there. So it was one of the big stories of that year's Sundance Film Festival was this premiere. I believe it, it premiered out of competition, but was one of the, you know, sort of like Sundance premieres. And obviously a lot of movies mm-hmm. go to Sundance, not necessarily to compete, but to compete for, you know, distribution, especially in those days. Um, and so it got bought by Searchlight for five-ish million dollars and became a, a little indie success in the late spring and early summer of 2007. So those are sort of the the gritty details of the backstory of Waitress. But is there anything you wanted to add to that? Um, I mean, uh, we're going to get into everything else uh, about like the, what this movie's legacy would become. Just that it's, I mean, again, it's still sad and a bummer yeah. that she never yeah. really got to see just how big her movie would kind of become to the point where it's like we almost don't even talk about the movie anymore because we talk about the because the musical has become so popular yes yeah yeah how many of this musicals fans don't even realize that what an incredible sort of like story from like the very very sort of like low-key indie movies of hell hartley in the 1980s and 90s to you know, Sarah Bareilles and Jesse Mueller and their Tony Award success for Waitress the Musical, you know, decades later. It's Hollywood's a funny place sometimes. And um, not a Tony Award success, though, because I don't think Waitress won any Tonys because famously Waitress was in the Hamilton season. Oh, I always misremember that. Jesse Mueller's Tony was for was for Beautiful, wasn't it? Uh, it must let's have been. Look that up she definitely has won a Tony, and in my mind, I misremember. I think it, it was only for Beautiful, but it is quite possible that she was. Yeah, no, I, she's only won the one Tony Award. I'm pretty sure, but um, and I think it is for Beautiful. In my mind, it's for Waitress, though. That's so funny because I saw Waitress and I didn't see Beautiful. <laughs> um, Waitress won no Tonys. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Well, in my head, they did. So, <laughs> um. I really like it's interesting. Wait, Waitress is an interesting musical in that I really enjoyed watching it, and yet what I remember of it is Jesse Mueller's performance and like the music. But when I say the music, I mostly mean she used to be mine. Like it's it's one of those right. musicals with like one really really big standout song that, and sometimes for me that's and enough. Sarah Bareilles had released a demo of it beforehand, so it's like that song was already like known to be like, okay, well, here Sarah's, it is. Sarah's version of that song is, I think, that song in its best form. She's imperfect, but she tries. She is good, but she lies. She is hard on herself. She's broken and won't ask for help. She is messy, but she's kind. She is lonely most of the time. Which I think is a little bit of a sacrilege when you talk about musical theater, because like 
the original cast recording is supposed to be like the prime, you know, object there, but I think through no shade at all to Jesse Mueller's performance, who I thought was wonderful, but like it it just hits different when it's coming from Sarah Bareilles, who is one of it's, it's a song that because I've heard other actresses do versions of it and mm-hmm. A lot of they put a lot of powerhouse singers in this role, and they end up overdoing it. Like, yes. I am not one to talk ill of Shoshana Bean ever, but <laughs> well, and also like, like that's what we have Shoshana comfort. Bean for. We have Shoshana Bean to overdo it. Like that is why we love sure, her. Sure, 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 sure. But yes, I agree. With Noted you. Republican Catherine McPhee does not do a very <laughs> good job with it either, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. No, I think Sarah's version of it. I think you're right, though. I think it's the the most grounded version of it. And it is, um, it's a beautiful song that always does sort of like hit me in a, in a weirdly personal place. Um, but anyway, I really like, yeah. So I like, I, I like where this movie's story ends up, even though it ends up in a place that I can't imagine Adrian Shelley could have ever imagined. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is where it ended up, but, uh, but here we are. And now of course we're talking about it. Uh, today on our podcast. So do we want to maybe plow forward into a plot description and then we will talk move on about to talk the about the movie itself. I want to talk about the movie. I want to talk about the precursor awards that it was up for. I want to talk about pies, Chris. I definitely want to have a little bit of an extended discussion about the pies because I, I think want to have at least a small conversation about the noted uh, landmark television program Felicity. Oh, we shall. Felicity and, uh, I mean, we'll get, we'll, talking about Carrie Russell's career will be a real interesting one because that is when I am going to talk about the Mickey Mouse Club on Disney Channel that I watched every goddamn day. But before we do that, uh, Chris, I'm going to bring out my little timer and, uh, we're going to have you do a 60 second plot description on the film Waitress from 2007. Not only have we not done this show in several weeks, I have not done this in, in a while. Moons. In a while. So, uh, I'm limber, this limber up, my friend. Uh, we're going to be talking about Waitress, written and directed by Adrian Shelley, starring Carrie Russell, Nathan Fillion, Jeremy Sisto, Cheryl Hines, Adrian Shelley, Andy Griffith, Eddie Jemison, Lou Temple. The movie premiered at the Sundance Film Festival on January 21st, 2007. It opened in limited release on May 4th, 2007. It ended up expanding, um, although never more. I don't think it ever got to the point of like a thousand screens or something like that. But um, it, it definitely expanded throughout its run. Chris, I have my stopwatch ready and waiting to go. Are you ready to do a 60-second plot description of Waitress? Fire up the oven. Let's bake this pie. All right. Uh, Sugar butter flour. Let's go. Your time starts now. (laughs) All right. So we meet Jenna at the very beginning of the movie. She is a waitress in a southern diner. She is married to a piece of shit named Earl. She is pregnant and does not want to be. Uh, Basically, she ends up going, uh, keeping it a secret from her husband that she's pregnant. She is going to keep the baby, basically, but she has very dark feelings about it. Meanwhile, we're just like kind of seeing her everyday life, including Earl, who is a self-involved piece of shit who sometimes hits her. Um, they, she is also friends with her fellow waitresses, Becky and Dawn. Becky is having a relationship with seconds. the like gruff cook, who's actually kind of a nice guy. Um, Dawn, also played by Adrian Shelley, is uh, dating a uh, 
trying to date. She she wants to fall in love. She wants to get married. And she ends up dating basically the heterosexual uh, Leslie Jordan. Meanwhile, all along, there is uh, Andy Griffith as an Ten old man seconds. who only ever lets Jenna be his waitress. Um, she has an affair. I should get into the affair. She has an affair with her OBGYN who is married. Eventually, uh, she keeps trying to go into these pie contests. Earl keeps finding out and he keeps hitting her about it. She has the baby immediately falling in love with the baby that she didn't even think that she wanted and leaves Earl and then Andrew Griffith dies and gives her a bunch of money and she buys the diner and makes her own pie restaurant and is happy with her baby. 16 seconds over but you know what? You're getting back into playing shape and it took me 45 minutes You did not get to that affair. A plot of the movie which is the affair. <laughs> you did manage to mention Eddie Jemison playing uh, the heterosexual Leslie Jordan which is not a bad a uh, descriptor for that character, a character who I think today, I much as I would wish that people would sort of like be a little lighten up a little bit about movies, I definitely think you would get at the very least some sort of um, this character is problematic because he doesn't take no for an answer when a woman uh, tells you that she's not interested. Uh, uh, you listen. His which, version of not taking no for an answer, though, is just making up poems. Poem. Yes, exactly, exactly. But you know what I mean. You know how people are. Um, but anyway, this yes. wonderful poem that's like, penny for your eyes, penny for your lips, penny for something, something, a dollar for your heart. A dollar for, no, one of the pennies is like a penny for your odor, which is just either. <laughs> <laughs> What a goof. Um, the one ca- uh, cast member that I didn't mention, because she's only in one scene, but uh, Darby Stanchfield shows up for a scene as Dr. Palmiter's wife, who is also a doctor, uh, Darby Stanchfield, who... Uh, I know best as Abby from the show Scandal, which uh, I definitely watched all of. Okay. Um, Can I just get this out of the way? Get it out of the way. I mean, I I think that this is baked in. I don't think that this is me being a jerk about the movie. Oh, I did not mean to do that, but I'm glad (laughs) I did. Um, uh, Okay. Dr. Pometer, the man that she's having an affair with, played by Nathan Fillion, who's like, you know... It's not that Jeremy Sisto isn't hot, but it's just like, if Jeremy Sisto doesn't take a shower, Jeremy Sisto's not hot anymore. And, like, that's supposed to be the dynamic of this, like, affair and relationship that, like, he's kind of stupid but nice and, like, supportive, like, whatever. But, like, he's also a piece of shit, too. Yes, well, and I think this Maybe is the not, thing. Maybe not, like, the type of piece of shit that Earl is, but, like, this guy sucks, too. Well, this is why they don't end up together. And I think the yes. movie is very smart about that. And the fact yes. that, like, Dr. Pometer is a guy who... I think that is a character who shows you what Jenna... How much Jenna would blossom from somebody just being kind to her. Like, you, like yes. she is somebody... She has her friends, obviously, Um uh, at Becky and Dawn at the restaurant, and they're lovely. And, you know, Andy Griffith's character is obviously likes her, but like shows it at least early in the movie by being a grumpy Gus or whatever. Um, Cal, there's one point where even in where she says to Cal at the restaurant, she's like, couldn't you just say like something nice? And I think this is a, this is a person who has a deficit of people being kind to her men being kind to her specifically not to gender it but like yes and so i think with dr pometer 
there is something to the fact that like she has she talks about like no nobody has ever comp you know talked about her in a way that is like complimentary like that before we don't really right. ever hear this character talk about her family life her parents in a way but like you wonder whether you know she ever sort of had that and i think you see the fact that she has this doctor who she ends up being sort of like involuntarily attracted to and i think one of the things she's attracted to is there's this guy who is telling her if you have any questions or concerns come to me and mm-hmm. i will be kind to you about it and and i think that makes a big difference for her but i think the fact that she doesn't end up with him also is owed to the fact that like she knows that like this is a guy who is cheating on his wife with her and that is not something that she wants ultimately yeah so and it, it is a better movie for them not ending up together but at I feel like maybe I realized too early when I watched this movie that he doesn't deserve her. It's maybe too early. It's maybe so too that early. It, it sours it sours the romance. Yeah, for because it a it's bit. like yes, it's good that she's having this, but mm-hmm. you're also very concerned for her and her safety the whole time because we've already seen Earl's yeah. violence side. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I think this and is also like, a movie that is not terribly sentimental about those kinds of things so i think those rules the fact that like becky is cheating on uh cheating on her husband who we never really see uh but who is we have we are told is an invalid who is uh uh, bedridden with kale who has a wife who we also don't really see beyond like i think we like see her in the background of a shot or something but who jenna is like we know what is her name ethel something something with an e um like we know her She's nice. She tells Cal not to yell at us. Like, so it's, I think this movie is fairly unsentimental about things like infidelity and sort of like takes it as almost like a part of life. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And that, like, and I think in that way, to me at least, it softens the fact that Dr. Pometer is, is cheating on his wife and sort of puts it in a little bit of a relaxed context. Ultimately, I think, like, this movie's not not a romantic comedy, but I think the right. romance side of it is not really what matters. It's kind of about, like, it's a those self- people's individual experiences within yeah. those relationships. and like It's mostly a movie about this, you know, the Jenna character kind of self-actualizing in a way, yeah. you know, not to make it sound too, like... Or reawakening. Uh, right. Not to yeah. Make it sound like a Hallmark card. Well, but also, and like, that's why you get all these interstitials of her, like, baking the pie. I think this is a movie that takes her talent seriously, which I really like. Um, that she has a real talent for making these pies in a way that is both, like, the, the, you know, the culinary aspects of it is one thing, but also it just in a way that connects her to other people, right? That is how she ends up connecting with Joe. That's, you get the sense of like, that's why Cal keeps her on, even though like, I imagine like all the stuff with Earl and, uh, you know, doesn't make it. I can't imagine it's fun to have this like asshole barreling his car into your parking lot and like leaning on the horn as it comes in. And like, she's all worried that Cal is going to maybe fire her because when she says that she's pregnant and he's like, yeah, no, it doesn't make a difference. And you get the sense that part of the reason for that is he knows how talented she is with these pies and everybody loves them. And it's how she kind of connects to, you know, her community a little bit. 
I mean, some some people are probably going to want to like shoot me straight into space for saying this, but like the best romance in this movie is between Jenna and Joe. Um, yes, hundred percent. In terms that, like, these are the only. I mean, they have a real people courtship. that are friends and that like care for each other in this movie. But I think yeah. that they are the relationship in this movie where they're two people who allow each other to be them full their full selves and they appreciate each other for being them their full selves they're both they're basically the two curmudgeons of the movie um getting an unfriendly person to be your friend like an unfriendly person who isn't like a bad person you know what i mean who isn't like doing nasty things or whatever but just a generally sort of like unfriendly person getting an unfriendly person to be your friend is such an accomplishment. It's one of those things where it's just like, yeah. The way to do like, it, though, is to let them be unfriendly. Mm-hmm, <laughs> to not exactly. create any inhibitor for their unfriendliness. Their chemistry is very, very fun. He ends up getting, Andy Griffith ends up getting a AARP Movies for Grownups Award nomination for Best Supporting Actor. Hell yeah. It is, which is like a perfect m choice, I think. Uh, it's that Simpsons joke about how old, what do old people really, uh, care about? They care about Matlock. It's like <laughs> AARP is not beating those allegations with that nomination. <laughs> like they are it's a really, good nomination. it's a good nomination. I would I like, like Andy. Okay. Because we, uh, we're not going to get into this yet, but because we've already drawn the little Miss Sunshine comparison. Yes. I would like an Andy Griffith nomination more than I like the Alan Arkin one. Ah, uh, well, and it's sort of along similar lines, right? The irascible, Old guy who like, you know, says outrageous things. Andy Griffith doesn't really the like asshole s- with a heart of gold. Yeah, basically. Yeah, 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 yeah. And your main character, who I think in many ways, Little Miss Sunshine has a lot of main characters, but like in many ways, Olive is kind of your focal point character, right? She's another one who, uh, you know, she's got the big dreams of that family, and um, the fact that that character sort of latches on to Alan Arkin. It's a similar. It's a similar thing. Um, but yeah, no, I love the relationship between Jenna and Joe in this movie. Joe's it's also great. the only person, aside from Jenna in the big climactic moment, who gets to tell off Earl because yes. it's his restaurant and he like Earl or comes in and makes a scene one night, breaks some shit. And at Dawn's uh, wedding of all things. Yes. Um and Joe because Joe passes away the same day that well not the same day he goes into he a goes coma into a coma and, and he does. never he never comes but out. he's yeah. having this major surgery the same day that Jenna's having her baby mm-hmm. which is just this nice conceit he gets to show up there for mm-hmm. uh and come say hello to Jenna but he also gets to tell off Earl and we get the satisfaction of having not yes. just someone but him specifically him specifically he's also the only person in this movie who sort of has power right he's he's rich and because he is rich he can say whatever he wants to say and he can make his order at the diner as specific as he wants it to be about whether ice belongs in his juice glass or not and he wants you know everything on a separate plate um and joe there you do not put ice in juice in orange juice oh i think orange juice juice over oh orange juice over ice is a good deal how do you have wait how do you have a screwdriver do you have it with no ice that's a screwdriver. That's not orange juice. It's orange juice with some vodka in it. Vodka doesn't That's change different. the properties that is a of it. cocktail. Chris, come on. Straight orange juice with ice is gross. No. Listeners, back me up on this. At had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. Uh, weigh in. Do you do you agree with Chris what or do you agree with me? What juice could you put ice with and have it not be gross? Cranberry juice. Cranberry juice on ice. Doesn't that sound refreshing and lovely? I think Less it does. Less refreshing than straight cranberry juice. 
<laughs> okay. I all right. I need I need our listeners to weigh in. <laughs> this, on this. I I love the shit that we can get into a fight about on this. Um. <laughs> <laughs> wait. So what, but wait. So, oh, so yeah. So Joe is the only one with any kind of. Uh, real power in this in this film, and ultimately he uses that to help pull Jenna out of uh, her circumstance. And how much do you think the check is that he I paused it? Okay, I paused it. It's you, two it's, something. It's I believe it is two hundred and seventy five thousand and something. Like it's 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 mm. not a it's weirdly like not a round number. It's like two hundred and seventy five thousand and fifty two dollars or something like that but it is right, because he's an old man it has to be a weird dollar amount it, right he can't just like leave her a million dollars it has to be like an old person writing you a check for eleven dollars also pausing it i looked at the uh the information on the check to find figure out where this movie is taking place and because literally the generalized south the literal the address that it has on the check is like rural route something southern usa and i was like <laughs> oh okay <laughs> Like we are that dedicated that to this That's being great. the non-specific South. <laughs> um, I thought that was kind of funny, but yeah, I believe it is somewhere in the range of the high two hundred thousands that he gives her, and good for her, and good for, for and her. good for him. Sixteen years ago in the generalized South, That's yeah, good, you know. that that'll take you far, honestly. Okay, but one thing that I did think. Because I didn't catch it on this rewatch. I mm-hmm. always thought that he left her the restaurant, but does she buy it? Does I he think give she... her this money and give her a restaurant? Because I don't however, think he she gives her a restaurant, that's all going to taxes and she's going to, you know. Yeah, I think, I think the restaurant ends up going up for sale because he dies and he doesn't mm-hmm. have any family to give it to. And I think she uses that money to buy the restaurant. I think you may be right that he didn't want to saddle her with the tax burden of uh boy that's an interesting way of getting around the IRS. All right. Uh you let the you let the restaurant go to I guess auction or whatever and then give whoever you want to have it enough money to get it. Uh clever Joe, clever. We did it Joe. Okay. Um I want to talk wait, what was I watching recently that did a we did it Joe completely like devoid of of modern context. Damn it. Oh, no. I think it's this. She says we did it, Joe. Yeah, but it was before this that I... It was something that I'd seen maybe like a week ago or so, and I can't remember now. Oh, no. It was the 2002 Oscars. One of the one oh, of no, the winners... That's, that's, I, that's the short film winner said to their friend who had died in, in, the, in the Twin Towers, uh, we did it, Joe. Um, well, this is more lighthearted than that. <laughs> Um, and then wait, they I, thanked Maury Povich. And then they thanked Maury Povich. Go listen to our episode of Little Gold Men about the 2002 Oscars. We had a really good time talking about that. Um, I want to talk about Carrie Russell, though, who I think is really lovely in this movie. And this movie comes at a really interesting crossroads for her character. This movie sort of represents a little bit of a connective tissue between her one phase of her career and then what would become uh, her sort of next phase. She is one of the... I people don't quite realize how rare it is for a actor or actress to have two distinctly popular TV shows in a career mm-hmm. to sort of especially where one is a sort of like Felicity is not necessarily a comedy but it's like a you know college drama right is it is essentially a more mature teen drama it is from that sort of right. milieu and then the Americans is this very sort of like you know, 
serious and sexy and fun like espionage thriller, but like heavy. Yeah, it's a it's a drama. The shows themselves could not be any more different. It's a real range. The characters could not be any more different. And so I think that. And she's still somebody who doesn't have a huge presence in movies. Waitress is still probably the most, the highest profile she's ever been in a film. She's been in bigger movies, but like she's in Rise of Skywalker and you never see her face. You know what I mean? I she's think she in, pulls that mask off. Does she? That piece of shit movie. Yeah, I think at some point I, I had like stopped everybody. paying attention. But like she's in Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, but like does anybody really remember? Those her? Movies. Well, but even if you remember those movies, you remember, like, the ape, right? You don't remember her. Right. Um, she's in Cocaine Bear coming up, which, like, is sort of the, ostensibly the reason we said we <laughs> we were going to do Waitress. Uh, but she's also, again, like, in an ensemble there, right? Like, and also, like, right. what do you think, what are people going to remember about Cocaine Bear? They're going to remember the fucking Cocaine Bear, right? Um, so her movie career is still an interesting thing. And maybe she's just one of those people who's going to, like, kick ass on TV for the rest of her career. And like, maybe that's exactly where she needs to be. I think we are probably on the verge of, we are, we are at this point overdue for the next great Carrie Russell TV show is maybe (laughs) what I'm thinking of. But anyway, I want to talk about her career from the earliest stages because, uh, 1991, she joins the cast of what is officially called the all new Mickey Mouse Club, which was on the Disney Channel. And I watched that show constantly. Like, whenever it was, if it, I can't remember whether it was on daily. I think it was on daily. Um, on the Disney Channel, uh, so many of the things that like embedded their way into my consciousness as a kid. This is why, like, I know the movie Newsies basically by heart is because it was on the Disney Channel constantly. But so, uh, the the this era of the Mickey Mouse Club is now, from this vantage point, known for launching the careers of Britney Spears, Christina Aguilera, Justin Timberlake, Ryan Gosling. All four of those came at, like, a, like, not a new version of the show, but, like, every year they would introduce new cast members, right? And so they were, like, two or three, like, uh, generations of this cast on before we got to Ryan Gosling and Britney Spears and Christina. But so Carrie Russell was in, I want to say like the second generation of all new Mickey Mouse club, like one of the first like new waves of young talent. And she came in when JC Chasse, I'm pretty sure came in. Um, and she was this like just gorgeous girl, but like her, her hair even then was kind of her signature, right? This sort of like <laughs> this big sort of like mane of beautiful curly hair. That was her, you know, thing. And and the Mickey Mouse Club then they would like they would do songs and skits, essentially, right? It was sort of this like, you know, uh tween age, teenage variety show. And the people who could sing always kind of jumped to the front. That's why Brittany and Christina and JC and Justin sort of, you know, jumped out from the show. And Carrie, I think, would sing when called upon, but like, wasn't really, that wasn't her thing, right? And I think Ryan Gosling probably, I think by the time Ryan Gosling was on, I had stopped watching it so much. So I think I'd gotten a little bit older. Um, But Carrie Russell was just sort of like, she was big in all the skits, right? And so she transitioned from that to, she was in the uh, Disney movie Honey, I Blew Up the Kid, which was the sequel to Honey, I Shrunk the Kid. Uh, Shrunk Shrunk the Kids was the uh, first one. She's sort of the 
babysitter, I want to say. I don't know. Sure. I've seen I've seen Honey, I Blew Up the Kid, but I really don't I've remember I've definitely it. not seen that movie in 25 years. I think she's babysitting the toddler that ends up, the titular toddler that gets blown up. Um, but anyway, uh, she's also around this time. The only other thing I had remembered seeing her in pre-Felicity but post-Mickey Mouse Club is she's in the music video for Bon Jovi's Always, if you remember <laughs> that one, where it's one of those, it's from the era of like, plot-heavy music videos. And in this music video, uh, Jack Noseworthy, who was the guy... Do you remember the show Dead at 21 on MTV? No. Okay. It was this. It was essentially like uh, um, this guy is on the run from the government because they like messed with his you know brain, experimented on him or something, and he's on the run. Anyway, uh, this guy is this like rocker guy in LA, right? And he's got a girlfriend played by Carlo Gugino, and they're like hot... And they live in a loft in L.A. And, like, he's sure. a rocker guy. And she's sort of his, uh, not quite, like, manager, but she's sort of like, you know, uh, she's there for him, right? And she's at the club with him. And he ends up cheating on her with Carrie Russell, who is, like, their friend. And she catches sure. them because he, like, sets up a camera to, like, record him and Carrie oh, Russell God. having sex. And it's, like beamed into the TV in the living room. And so Carla Gugino comes home at an inopportune time and she sees him doing it on the TV. And then the she The tropiest leaves. thing of 90s infidelity stories. Somebody was recording someone. Indeed. And then Carla Gugino runs off and then she ends up sleeping with this, like, artist who, like, paints her painting and then has sex with her in his big fancy loft. And then Jack Noseworthy comes and walks in on them. And that guy, the artist, was the guy who played Kelly Taylor's coke-addicted boyfriend in the later seasons of ben- Beverly Hills 90210. But so, uh, and then Jack Noseworthy, like, burns down this guy's apartment in retaliation for having sex with Carla Gugino. And then Carla Gugino walks away from it all with, like, the burning apartment behind her. And she's like, I'm done with this. And that's the end of the Bon Jovi music video for always. And I watched that music video 8 billion times but I remember being struck by the fact that like oh Carrie Russell's like all grown up she's like in like (laughs) low rise jeans and like a bra top in this scene where she's you know about to have sex with this guy and I was like oh god like it's one of those you know this is pre or post Felicity? Pre Felicity. This is probably like ninety wow. five ish. Wow, 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 wow. Yes, pre Felicity. Exactly. Um, so yeah, she's like young. She's like a teenager in this video. Um, and so then Felicity comes in nineteen ninety eight. I know that it's nineteen ninety eight without having to look it up because Felicity's college years. Uh, layer onto my college years exactly. She started college in 1998, just the same time that I did, um, which I bonds us in, in some elemental way. <laughs> um, so talk to How me about Felicity. Felicity do you vividly remember? Because I've wanted to rewatch Felicity because Felicity, for whatever reason, was not sticky to my brain, but it was everything to me when it was on. I liked it more than... We had to sneak off to watch Dawson's Creek, so I would, like, piecemeal get Dawson's Creek, but somehow I was able to sneak watching Felicity. Um, like, I... Felicity meant more to me than Buffy did. Okay, so... I remember yeah. so little beyond that one guy getting hit by a bus. Wait, which guy gets hit by a bus in Felicity? Does he get hit by a bus or a car? The guy that she's like, I don't want to date you, and he's Scott like, Speedman or or um, uh, Scott Foley. 
I don't think it's either of them. I think there's some dude. There's another who, like, guy is in love with her, and she kind of says no, and like he's like upset, and then gets hit by a bus in front of her and dies. No. Oh. I don't know. Okay, so here's my thing with Felicity. It's the only thing that's stuck in my brain from Felicity, but it meant everything to me. I was much, much more of a Buffy, and then by weirdly by extension, Dawson's Creek, because Buffy and Dawson's Creek were on the same night. So I watched the both of those. Buffy was my entry point into, no, that's wrong. I started watching Buffy because I watched the premiere of Dawson's Creek because of like pure curiosity. And right. that got me into Buffy. But then I was, I was like a Buffy fan first and then a Dawson's Creek fan because it was on the same night. Felicity, I remember so much of the conversation around it. Mm-hmm. It was such a big deal. It launched her. She won the Golden Globe for that show's first season. One of the Golden Globes sort of. Uh, they had a run of like awarding Ingenues. Claire Danes and Carrie Russell and Jennifer Garner. They still do the ingenues. It's just mm-hmm. sometimes now their ingenues are men. Well, but now also, yeah, right. It's like they used to do the ingenues for the Golden Globes and then but otherwise behaved more or less like the Emmys. Whereas now the Golden Globes, it's like all it's like oops, all marshmallows. Like, you know, it's like yeah. the Lucky Charms <laughs> where it's just all marshmallows. That's the Golden Globes for television these days. Um, but anyway, so like Felicity was Obviously, a big deal when it debuted. Carrie Russell was a big deal. Then the haircut happened at the beginning of season two, and right, that was right. a big deal. And then also in like its later seasons, like it like did a time travel storyline and all this sort of like odd stuff. And I didn't watch Felicity faithfully, but I did maybe in the mid to late aughts when like Netflix first started and you could like get like DVDs of TV shows mm-hmm. sent to you. That's when I watched the run of Felicity. And I really, really loved it. And that's a show with, like, loved all of those cast members of that show. Like, they all really sort of, like, imprinted on me. Oh, but the other thing, even before the haircut, well, around the same time of the haircut, the thing that Felicity did was, was the first big show that I remember that, like, got people onto teams in terms of shipping, right? You either wanted Felicity to be with Ben, who was played by... Um, Scott Speedman, or I believe I was, I was Team Ben, as was I, Uh, or you wanted her to be with Noel, who was played by Scott Foley, who was a little bit more neurotic and was like, I guess the nice guy. Even though the thing about like Felicity is Ben wasn't really like not the nice guy; he was more aloof. Fucking worst tropes of especially the yeah. 90s the nice guy trope that it's like oh but the, she should be with the nice guy but the nice guy is actually a fucking asshole well but i think the felicity <laughs> did a decent job of being like yeah noel's the nice guy this is these are reasons why she would be with noel but these are also reasons why she wouldn't want to be with noel and did a good job of like again like ben is more like aloof and like the thing about ben is felicity follows ben from palo alto where she was originally going to go to college at stanford and she, like, threw that away to follow Ben to New York to go to the fictional University of New York, which is essentially NYU and all but name, um, and live in these, like, fabulous loft apartments and freshman dorm housing. Um, but anyway, uh, follows... So now we're lighting at all times. Follows a boy across the country to go to college because this guy said, like, one nice thing to her at graduation. Um, and so it's, like, this cautionary tale of, like, uh, you know... 
don't do that, <laughs> essentially. But Ben then turns out Never to be... Never would have happened if she could have stayed in touch with him on Facebook. But then after a while, Ben sort of then, like, gets a thing for Felicity, and then it becomes this whole big fucking, like, triangle. As triangles go, like, later triangles, like, Buffy Spike Angel was super annoying because the fans got, like, yes. absolutely insane. The thing about... Ben or Noel is those fans dug their heels in, but I think the show did a good job of like keeping that kind of balanced a little bit. Like they kept throwing in impediments to like Ben would get a girlfriend and like Ben would be with Julie, the Amy Jo Johnson character. And then like Noel would get a girlfriend who was like the Doritos girl or whatever. Um, and do you remember that? What was Not her name? Not the Doritos girl. You remember that though, right? You remember those ads were like, Oh, of oh, course. Yes. Um, Anyway, I loved Felicity. Felicity was... I'm going to rewatch Felicity this year. I, I, if I, I had I, been I, more into... See, if Felicity was a show that was on while I was in high school, I might have gone to college in New York City and be paying <laughs> mountains and mountains of college debt as we speak. Um, because it like it really does make you All want you to... All you needed was a Scott Speedman to be like, see you around sometime. Oh, if I had a Scott Speedman who was like nice to me in that way at graduation and then was like, see you in New York, I'd be like... Yeah, I would have done what Felicity did. Like, absolutely. <laughs> See you tonight, honey. Um, <laughs> okay, so you mentioned that Felicity haircut. Fully fully a moment, fully a time. And uh, I'm sure I will text you as soon as I get to the episode where she chops off her hair. But <laughs> yes. there is something also, especially about the late 90s specifically. Mm -hmm. Because when did Rachel change her hair and then change it back to the Rachel? Um I'm I'm doing a rewatch of Sex in the City now, and you can tell the exact because like Sex in the City starts out like kind of like oh it's crunchy it, it is crunchy early it on it is crunchy yes. at the beginning yes it is and like it's late '90s in a way that's not quite fabulous yet but like the show levels up quite literally on the episode that Carrie straightens her hair. And, like, it lasts for, like, three episodes, and then it goes back to Sarah Jessica Parker's curly hair again. But, like, the show, like, it starts looking better. It's shot better. The costumes get better. The episode Carrie straightens her hair. It's wild. That's crazy. Um, I do remember that, though, in the promos, that the one promo they have, and I think it's, like, it also almost weirdly coincides with, like, after 9-11. Remember how, like, Sex in the City, like... That's episode. That's statement. season four. Uh, Nine eleven is not until mid season four. Yeah, because the mission statement of that show like very clearly changes to like that's the that that famous SNL skit where Christina Aguilera is playing uh, Kim Cattrall and she's like New York's the fifth whore at this table. Like that's sort of <laughs> that is what I think of when I think of like post nine eleven, like Sex and the City becoming like the emblem of New York City. That's when like the city becomes very very right. You know, important you know in the show's mythos really but yes um everybody freaked out when felicity cut her hair they blamed that for the show's downfall in the ratings which was insane truly rude, truly rude of a thing to do to an actress so after then felicity she does some like guest star i remember it's so funny it says she's only she only did two episodes of scrubs and in like my mind she did like half a season of scrubs right um but she doesn't really she pops up into movies sparingly i remember her very much it so felicity ends in 2002 and i don't remember seeing her 
in much of anything after that until the upside of anger which is 2005 mm-hmm. she plays one of joan allen's four daughters along with evan erica rachel wood yeah evan rachel wood erica christensen and allison Lohman? alicia witt ah alicia witt um and she's the one uh carrie russell who is the ballet dancer who is sure perhaps has something of an eating disorder burgeoning uh happening there i believe like i think i remember we should do the upside of anger soon what a great movie um and then in 2006 jj abrams gets tasked with directing the new mission impossible movie and of course jj abrams was the big superstar producer on felicity and he brought her in to co-star in mission impossible 3 as like a fellow agent she she's the like it almost feels like this is mission impossible 3 is closer to like bond tropes because Mm -hmm. she's the misdirect she's the famous name it's it's her michelle monaghan who like michelle monaghan like we know her by name way more now than we did then and we thought that carrie russell was gonna get the big starring role but she's the one who surprisingly dies in the first act yes and, and like Michelle Monaghan like ends brutally. up being like, like she has a chip who... in her brain or something that they blow off and she's just like suddenly dead. Yes. But I, I always love the fact that like JJ Abrams was, you know, so loyal to her and wanted to, you know, bring her into this movie because at this point she really is a TV actress, a TV actress who hadn't been on TV for four years. And so then she pivots off of that in 2007 She's in Waitress, uh, which premieres at Sundance. She's also in that movie, August Rush, that we can't talk about because it was the best original song nominee. Um, The movie about, what's the plot of that movie? Is Robin Williams is... Robin Williams? Yeah, it's the one where like Freddie Highmore is like the kid who's like... Oh yeah, the the good doctor before he was the good doctor. Um, But like, isn't isn't Robin Williams like... Isn't that sort of like a searching for Bobby Fisher thing where like he goes and like, Oh sure. He wants to be like an acoustic musician or something. Yeah. Yeah. But I think Robin Williams is like the, like almost like the Lawrence Fishburne playing chess in the park kind of a figure (laughs) for this kid. I could be wrong. Anyway, I saw August rush and I definitely don't remember the finer points of the plot, I guess. Uh, Best original song nominee. Sure. Um, So then, yeah. So waitress, I think, gives her a little bit of a career boost, even though she doesn't really like springboard from that into this like great uh, movie career. Right. But then eventually she's again, she's in scrubs. She's uh, Fox tries to do this sitcom with her and Will Arnett post arrested development called running wild that like, I remember watching a little bit and thinking she was pretty funny in it, but it did not last. Um, and then the Americans doesn't come along until 2013. So like either she's really picky or Hollywood doesn't have the faith in Carrie Russell that it maybe should because she's tremendous on the Americans. Well, and, and even the Americans was kind of a slow <clears throat> building thing across its seasons because it was mostly a critical fave at first and like mm-hmm. people had to kind of you know be proselytized to watch it but like by the end of its run it was a very celebrated show oh hugely celebrated show especially among tv critics tv critics really loved it um did matthew reese end up winning an emmy for that show 
Is that yeah, right? because there's that great screenshot of her during his speech. Yes. Though, oh. did he win for maybe directing the show? No, I think he won for acting. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Okay, so 2018, Matthew Reese wins Outstanding Lead Actor in a Drama Series for the Americans. So, and yes. that's the uh, biggest prize that that show ever wins. Yeah, and won that same year at one uh, also for writing and um, for the series finale. Both Matthew Reese and uh, the show's writing award came for the series finale of that show. That I remember also being, I think about that in the same way that I think about how Friday Night Lights was a late the Emmy sort mm-hmm. of came to that show late and Kyle Chandler won a Emmy for that show. And I remember of both of those feeling bad that like Connie Britton and Carrie Russell didn't win Emmys, but the male, uh, the male leads win. The other thing though, obviously about the Americans is Carrie Russell and Matthew Reese end up getting together via the Americans and they are married now, or are they just one of those like hot, we're not, we don't need to get married couples, even though we're together. I mean, regardless of what the situation is, they're a hot couple. <laughs> they're, oh, like, I always think about them. Wait, I want to see. Yes, married in 2021, more recently than you would maybe think, because mm. um, they've been together for a while. So anyway, I always think about, I can't remember what was the the one Wanda Sykes special where she's talking about the Obamas, and she just goes, and you know they're fucking. Like that's, and I always think about that when I see Carrie Russell and Matthew Reese. It's like you know they're fucking like they are so super hot together. Simply one of the hottest couples in Hollywood. Cast them in a movie together. I will watch it. Like, come on, cast them in an Adrian Lyon movie together. Fuck yeah, put them in Dark Waters and see what happens. Um, instantly a better movie, I would bet. Yeah, honestly. No, I mean Ben Affleck's not better than that movie. Listen, you know how I feel about Ben Affleck. I like him about 20% that uh, the rest of the world does, and that's fine. Um, Do we want to talk about anything more about Carrie Russell before we maybe move on to other things about this movie? Uh, No, legend. I think Uh, she's great. I think she's great in this movie. I really love her Honestly, one of probably the underrated actresses of her generation. Probably because she's, you know... When she gets to do uh, really strong work in whether it's in TV or movies like this, you know, it's yeah. these small bursts. She never really gets to. This is a very kind of, without saying it as a pejorative, TV, TV ish cast, right? Nathan right. Fillion at this point is best known for being on uh, Firefly, which was the short TV show that lasts for one season. Yes, but uh, what was the year that they did the movie version? I think it was the same year. I think it was uh, Serenity was, no, it was 05. So they did the Firefly movie Serenity in 05, which I remember getting pretty good reviews. Um, But he's also like, it's one of those things where if you are popular in a show that is popular with like fandom, you will live forever, essentially. And so... Uh, he's uh, brought onto the final season of Buffy as the big one of the big sort of stretch run villains on that show. He ends up doing a run on Desperate Housewives around the same time, 2007-2008, as I believe Dana Delaney's ex-husband or husband. I think that's who he was. Um, but you can always tell these guys who are like super, super popular with, oh, also around this time he did that um, Dr. Horrible's sing-along blog, which I remember being a strike year uh, project that Joss Whedon had done. But like 
Nathan Fillion, hugely, hugely popular among fandom. And so will always sort of be, uh, you know, he's prime guest star bait on a lot of things. He will show up. Do you watch Big Mouth? Uh, um, I used to. Every once in a while. Big Mouth did not need to be as many seasons as it ended up being. I still like every year I'll watch it and I I will uh, very much enjoy it. But so Missy, the uh, character that Iowa Debris voices now. Fantastic. uh, Her sort of imaginary friend is imaginary Nathan Fillion, who like (laughs) uh, essentially like advises her on things and is a a space captain of an, you know, unspecific show or whatever. And uh, I always find that super delightful. And he voices himself. In that, um, I, of course, am obligated to mention that I first came into contact with Nathan Fillion as Joey Buchanan on One Life to Live because he was uh, the Joey Buchanan when I started watching it, who's a character who ended up like later, like becoming a priest or whatever. And he came back and he was hot again or whatever. But uh, uh, Joey Buchanan was having an affair with the aunt of his girlfriend. He was dating Kelly Kramer, and then he had an affair with Dorian Kramer. And Dorian was one of those fucking like soap diva characters who was like always getting into trouble and and is like super over the top. And it was a very scandalous affair indeed. Oh, but Joey, so this is the thing is like Dorian's having an affair with Joey, and Joey is the son of her arch enemy, uh Vicky, Victoria, uh Victoria Buchanan, who was like the like the main character of One Life to Live. And so it was a hugely scandalous uh, moment for all of us, and uh, I very much enjoyed it. Um you don't love Dr. Pomander in this movie. How do you feel about Nathan Fillion? Nathan Dr. Fillion does a lot of the same performances for me. Yes. Oh, he absolutely does. Yes. He does not have a ton of range. I think within that limited range, he can be very charming and very fun. But yeah, you don't cast this guy to play a variety of, <laughs> of notes. <laughs> well, I mean, I think I think he's probably more smartly cast here than he often is because like i think that limitation is put to use in this movie like for a lot of the reasons we kind of already talked about with like where this relationship eventually goes yeah yeah uh also jeremy sisto is really good in this movie in a in a role that is very hard yeah very unlikable do well and to like go to that full you know narcissistic length in a way that is honest and Mm -hmm. still not really asking for any audience sympathy whatsoever. Jeremy Sisto around this time had just been in, or was still in, I guess, uh, a show on NBC called Kidnapped that I remember liking better than its reputation was. It was one of those, like, you know, one, one season about one particular, like, kidnapping plot or whatever, and he was the main character he was like the fbi uh agent who was tasked with uh figuring this out he worked with um delroy lindo they were like it was him and delroy lindo were like the the team that was trying to save this kid who had gotten kidnapped but like carmen ajogo's on that show uh uh timothy hutton daniel delaney i remember being like weirdly into that one when it was on so like again like the tv-ness of this of this cast, right? Sisto was on a TV show at that time. Cheryl Hines was on Curb Your Enthusiasm at this time. And I think it maybe contributed a little bit to the sense that this movie was a little sitcom-y. I think when you talked, when you heard people sort of 
mm-hmm. detractors of this movie. I think that was maybe one of the things that they would talk about was that the movie was maybe a little sitcom-y, which like I can see, but it's also like it's that sort of very idiosyncratic Adrian Shelley thing that she's bringing to it, where it is. Um, there's a quaintness to the setup, and then within that, the dialogue is a little quirky, right? It's and a little, it's, it's fairly broad too. Yeah, but yeah. I don't know. I, I, I tend to hate that as a pejorative. It's the type Me of too. pejorative people threw at my big fat Greek wedding as well. Sure. But it's like, well, which also, also didn't beat those allegations by the, becoming a sitcom. After I that. mean, yeah, that, it, yeah. A sitcom that like everyone involved says never should have happened, mm-hmm. but I don't know. It, it, I think that pejorative also, it, it's, it's a pejorative people throw around because they don't want to just say this isn't my taste, <laughs> you right. know, because like, right. especially when you use it towards something like waitress where it's like, yeah, but that tonal quality you're talking about is something that it is actually using for a reason. And, doing a pretty good job at how it uses it and it does it to reveal character and not just Mm -hmm. the lead character but this whole like host of quasi weirdos and like i i would rather use the word quirky be used as a pejorative for something like this than sitcom-y yeah Oh, interestingly enough, I'm like, I'm perusing the Wikipedia page. It does say on the Wikipedia page that the check that he, that Joe gives her is for $270,000 for $270,450. So I was pretty close. Um, But yeah, no, I absolutely agree with you in that the fact that like, it is a often a very unnecessary pejorative. Just talk about what it is. If it's not your taste in comedy, then like, say that, say it's a little too pat, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Or a little too broad or something like that. Just like sitcom-y in general is, I think, too broad of a brush. Um, The other thing that people kind of used to dog this movie got wrapped up in like, this is, I forget what year Knocked Up came out. It might be 2007 or it might have been like 2006. But like this movie, Knocked Up and Juno all got talked about together yes. because it's all characters who decide not to have an abortion. Not even and... decide to not have an abortion, but like very kind of quickly rule out the idea of having an abortion because it would like then you have no movie. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, and I think that was I think that was a lot of the thing that people sort of uh, objected to was like in real life and uh, in real life is also a weird, like sometimes a criticism that I don't love, even though I often use it. Um, I probably should do it less because like, this isn't real life. This is a specific story. This isn't generalized real life. This is a specific story that we're telling, but that like in real life, these women in these situations would have given much more, um, much more thought to the idea of having an abortion. And like, I don't think that's true of Jenna though. And like maybe Jenna that's me imposing real life on this, but like it, it's it always been sense. strange that this movie got wrapped up in that discussion. And I understand why well, like is a trend. In the broad sense, it is frustrating for people to see that in multiple movies, but I've never mm. felt like it was any one of those movies' fault. And each movie kind of justified the decision that yeah. you know the characters make. This I one agree. especially, though, I think is always very strange when it, you know. 
got and locked into that trend. In Juno, she goes to the point of like going to the clinic or whatever, and like she like does seem to consider that. I think knocked up is the one where people sort of that's the one where like uh, you know, Seth Rogen can't even say abortion. He says shmushmortion. And and that you you the incredulity that a character like Katherine Heigl's in that movie wouldn't have an abortion seems like there doesn't seem to be I mean, whatever. What's a good reason? Like people's choices are their choices and they should, you know, that's the whole right. point is to be have, you know, autonomy over your own choices. But I think that was the movie that I think got the most serious criticisms of like, it just, it doesn't maybe pass the smell test. I don't know. Um, controversies that are 16 years old that I still remember. <laughs> that's what we're here to do. Uh, I want to back about... up to, oh, sorry, go ahead. Please. No, go ahead. Well, I was gonna. I wanted to back up to Sundance for a second. That's exactly um, we, what I was gonna segue. Hey, into look well. at us! This is a cool Sundance. Um, it's an interesting Sundance, and I and I I think you make a good point pointing out the Little Miss Sunshine of it all, because Little Miss Sunshine was such a big Sundance success. It sometimes surprises me that Coda last year was the first Sundance movie to win Best Picture, right. because. I do sometimes have an inflated sense of the Sundance to Best Picture pipeline. Little Miss Sunshine went from Sundance to being an Oscar nominee. Precious did the same thing. Um, Call Me By Your Name later on did the same thing. But it doesn't happen every year. And I think the 2007 Sundance is an interesting um, is an interesting case study in that. In that the closest it gets to Oscar crossover, the only real Oscar crossovers are away from her, which premieres uh, there at that Sundance. Sarah it did world getting... premiered, however, at the previous TIFF. Oh, okay. That mm-hmm. makes a little bit more sense then. But it did play this Sundance. So, but that's a that's a key distinction. So even away from her doesn't really uh, springboard off of this. Was the Savages a Sundance premiere then, or was that yes? yes. Okay, so the and, Savages um... premieres. The Savages also goes to Fox Searchlight at that time, too. Ends up getting a Best Actress nomination for Laura Linney and a Best a Screenplay nomination. A surprise one that. Indeed, a very big surprise one. And then Tamara Jenkins gets nominated for Screenplay in that year where I believe it was three of the five screenplay nominees, uh, original Screenplay nominees were women, which... This, Lars and the Real Girl, and remind me the... Well, Sarah Polly's nominated, but in Adapted. In Adapted. Um, maybe that's what I was thinking of. Hold on a second. Let me... But that was a story that, that year of so many female screenwriters. Oh, well, nominated. no, it was Juno. It was Diablo Cody. Oh, One, duh. The year. winner. Duh. <laughs> duh. Duh, duh, duh. Yeah. Um, but so it's an, otherwise from those movies, it's an interesting portrait of where indie film was at the time. So the out-of-competition premieres that I thought were notable... Uh, Black Snake Moan, the Craig Brewer movie that got mm-hmm. a lot of hullabaloo for its, you know, that poster of like, uh, you know, uh, Samuel Jackson and Christina Ricci and she's chained to the radiator and the whole thing. Um, there was Chapter 27, which was the movie where Jared Leto sort of ostentatiously gains all that weight to play. Uh, what's his name? Um, the guy who shot John Lennon. Chapman. Mark mm-hmm. David Chapman. Um Tom Hooper uh, was there with Longford, which I believe ends up becoming a television movie, right? I don't think that was a theatrical release. Um, John August had that movie, The Nines, that I remember really liking Melissa McCarthy in back in the pre-Bridesmaid 
the Bridesmaids era of Melissa McCarthy, uh, the Rod Lurie movie, Resurrecting the Champ, uh, the Savages that they mentioned, and then Mike White's directorial debut, Year of the Dog, which mm-hmm. didn't get a ton of attention back then. Um, There's also the uh, documentary No End in Sight, which I think for a while that year was expected to be the Oscar yes. winner. Just Did I not include nominated. that? I should have included that because, yes, that was an Oscar nominee uh, no end in sight. The competition titles, I think, are even more interesting in that they none of them really end up making a big impact broadly. But I remember the biggest, a lot of them. most controversial story of this Sundance. Are you talking about Hound Dog? Hound Dog. Hound Dog, the Dakota Fanning movie. How old was would she have been in 2007? If the the controversy of this movie is she's plays a child that is sexually abused and it it created all this controversy out of this Sundance and people being outraged that you know this was depicted and a lot of the outrage made it seem like it was depicted on screen and depicted graphically Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and the truth of the matter to my understanding was that it it is something that incurs into occurs entirely off screen. But I think because we, you know, at this point we'd grown up, we'd watched this child actor grow up. We'd seen yes. this child performing from that's the age the of thing. six. Yeah, People were really uncomfortable with uh, just that subject matter happening. And I don't, I think that movie just sat on a shelf for years yeah. afterwards, which like sometimes does happen at Sundance that like yes. movies just absolutely never see the light of day. Um, but then it ended up, is this one of the ones that ended up being on like lifetime channel or something? Oh, I think you're thinking of an, an American crime, which was also that, that same, uh, right. Sundance, which ended that's up being the Catherine Keener, Elliot movie. page one where yes. Elliot page is locked in the basement or something. Yes. Yeah. I believe that ended up being a Showtime release. Um, sure. Looking at this list, though, because this 2007 was the year I moved to New York, and I remember that thing of all of these independent movies are now available to me in a way that they really weren't. I can see. So I saw, I remember seeing David Gordon Green's Snow Angels in theater and starting out in the evening, the Frank Langella movie uh, in a theater, and Teeth, I remember seeing uh, in a theater, the Vagina Dentata movie that is... Um, uh, got a little bit of buzz. I think of of the movies that came out of Sundance with Buzz that did, I remember watching Rocket Science on DVD, I believe, which was the movie about like competitive debate that Anna Kendrick is in, that mm-hmm. I remember liking a little bit. So the uh, Audience Award winner is maybe one of the more anonymous ones, which is uh, Grace is Gone, which is the movie where John Cusack plays a widower. His wife died in the Middle East. Um, uh, I believe she was uh, she was uh, a soldier uh, and dies while he's caring for their kids. Golden Globe nominee Grace is gone. By the way, <laughs> oh oh, did he get nominated or did that? I think get it's a song, song nominee. I think you're right. It might even be Bono. Hold please. Um, I believe you are right. It no, it had gotten nominated for. Because Clint Eastwood did the score for Grace oh, is Gone. Oh, Jesus so Christ. So Clint Eastwood right. <laughs> was nominated for both the score and then the song that he co-wrote with Carol Bayer Sager. The song is also called Grace is Gone. It's probably just, you know, him, you know, dropping a couple forks on a piano and being like, Grace. Grace gone. is gone. Um, can I tell you the wildest thing, though, about Grace is Gone? So Grace is Gone directed by James C. Strauss, who a uh, career didn't really go 
too many places. He directed a movie called The Winning Season with um, Sam Rockwell. He's coaching, I believe, like a girls basketball team. Uh, a movie called People, Places, Things with Jermaine Clement. But he has an upcoming movie uh, being released, I believe, this spring called Love Again that co-stars one Ms. Celine Dion, my friend. Do you have a question for me? Yes, Ms. Dion. Do you really believe in all these things you sing? You obviously know nothing about it. What? Love. I... Okay, let, let's get into it. Let's get into it. People let's. don't even understand... Let's. ...how excited for none other than Miss Celine Dion's acting She's debut. all in that trailer. It's like, you know how I sometimes... will accept no naysaying. I will accept no You know how no sometimes negativity. you watch a trailer that is sort of making a big deal about a certain actor or performer who's in it as like a special deal and you watch it and you're like, all the scenes in this trailer are coming from the same scene. And so I know that this person is only going to, it's like Jeff Goldblum in that one Jurassic World trailer, right? Where you're like, <laughs> Jeff Goldblum isn't really in this movie. You're only ever seeing him in parts from like one scene. Celine Dion is in that trailer from multiple different scenes. She's in the, she's in the press conference. She's on the phone with Priyanka Chopra. She's like palling around being like Sam uh, how do we pronounce his last name? Hewan? Sure. Uh, his best, like his best friend, like advising him. Celine on Dion was in the press release when this movie started filming. Her I have been waiting for the this title. day for a long time. Her name on the poster is above the title. So I'll like this. The, is the title of the movie used to be It's All Coming Back to Me Now. I mean, it's featured very I have followed this production. <laughs> you okay, so a newsletter uh, let's talk about weekly. a little bit about the sadness of it because friend of okay. former guest Christina Tucker and I were talking about this. We're afraid that this could be the last singing of Celine that we get. I can't really oh. emotionally get into the possibility of that, but like if this ends up being like Julie Andrews' Princess Diary two singing, I, it's 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 just, just going to be so sad. I'm excited to see this movie. Though. I can't wait to see this movie. Can't also, Christina, come back movie. on our podcast and talk about something so we can talk about love again uh, as a tangent <laughs> for whatever movie we end up talking about. I will I will look when the movie is uh, coming up. I will reach out to Christina and see if we can get her off to talk about literally anything. So I, can I can't believe movie. we I the, the Clint Eastwood connection to Grace is gone. I had totally forgotten about I forgot yeah. about that. Jesus Christ. All right. Yeah. Remember the age of uh, trying to get Clint Eastwood a best original song or score nomination? They were they God. really tried for it. Like I I'm, I'm honestly surprised the Golden Globes never actually gave her one. Um, I want to talk I would about like the to pies. eat an arsenic sandwich, please. Um, Chris, let's talk about the pies. I want to talk about okay. first of all the pies in this movie, and then I have a game that I get that I uh, the 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 like blackberry chocolate pie. I don't know why we ever consider any other pies ever. That's the one that she and Nathan Fillion are making in her kitchen where mm -hmm. it's and I believe that's the one that she calls lonely Chicago pie. Yeah. Like they're like they mash up the berries and then they pour chocolate over them and like they mix up the like the mashed up blackberries and raspberries into this like chocolate ganache looking kind of thing. I mean and it looks absolutely incredible. So I want to go down the list. Uh some kind little internet site made a whole list of all of the pies doing in this the Lord's movie work. And what's in them. The very very first one, all the ones that are like named, right? I don't want Earl's baby pie is the one with uh it's the brie cheese and smoked ham with like an egg 
uh, it's a quiche. Not a pie. That's a quiche. Listen, if Jenna says it's a pie, I'm going to go with Jenna. Okay, She's fine, the one with the restaurant. It I don't looks do good. quiche. I don't. I like. I like eggs. I like ham. I like brie. I like all of those things. So why wouldn't I want to try that in a nice little pie? Um, kick in the pants pie is cinnamon spice custard. That's fine. That sounds, that sounds good. Great. I like a custard. I hate my husband pie, which is bittersweet chocolate, and you don't sweeten it. Make it into a pudding and drown it in caramel. I think she's being pretty aggressive with the don't sweeten it, so I imagine it's going to be pretty bitter. I think Jenna's probably with caramel, though. It's uh, there's, there's... that's true. That is true. I'm willing to give it a shot. I would love to know what goes into the marshmallow mermaid pie that she brings to the doctor, who she doesn't realize is going to be Doctor Pometer. And he enthuses about it so severely, but like that's got to basically be like a lemon meringue pie, but with marshmallows lemon. and some other different type of fruit meringue. I love that idea. I'm very much into discovering what's in the marshmallow mermaid pie because it got rave reviews from Dr. Pometer. Um, she makes Dawn the fallen in love chocolate mousse pie, which sounds like it's one of her like popular options and like, Love a chocolate mousse pie. Love a chocolate chiffon, you know, kind of a thing. Um, Let's see. Baby screaming its head off in the middle of the night and ruining my life pie, which is New York style cheesecake brushed with brandy and topped with pecans and nutmeg. Jesus. Mwah. Mwah. Love it. Winner. Uh, Dr. Pometer also is a fan of the peachy keen tarts, which we don't really get much of an explanation for, but like it's a peach tart. You're not really going to go wrong. It Have like, you already glossed past naughty pumpkin pie? No, Naughty Pumpkin Pie is coming up. Okay. Um, Earl murders me because I'm having an affair pie, which is the one where she smashes blackberries and raspberries into a chocolate crust, which also seems good. That's I think amazing. she's doing wonderful things with blackberries and raspberries in this movie. Um, I can't have no affair because it's wrong and I don't want Earl to kill me pie, which is the one with vanilla custard with banana. And then she takes out the banana because banana um, a lot of the the pies that we see in this movie, especially in the opening montage and the closing montage, are custard pies of like various mm-hmm. pastel colors, which is fine. I have no objection to that, but like I'm not going to object to a custard pie. But like I'm into like when she like does really interesting things with the ingredients, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Joe orders at one point a Spanish dancer pie with potato crust. I'm very. It's his favorite thing about Wednesdays. Is. It's favorite thing about Wednesday is I want to know more. I would like to know more about what Spanish dancer <laughs> pie with potato crust is. I am intrigued. Uh, as you mentioned, naughty pumpkin pie, which is the one that she's going to bring to Dr. Pometer. And then her uh, original doctor ends up filling in for him that day. That's so gotta be like spicy there. pumpkin pie, right? I would as imagine someone, so. As someone who like doesn't alcohol, like pumpkin pie, I would like that. Maybe there's like a bourbon element to it too. Like maybe like that's... red hots. Wait, like, like red hots, like candies. Yes. Oh, interesting. All right. It's a cinnamon candy. The other one that Joe enthuses upon uh, at length is the strawberry chocolate oasis pie, which does seem to be a dark chocolate and strawberries concoction that just sounds heavenly, honestly. Wait, is this his favorite thing about Wednesdays? Is it this pie? This is the one he like waxes on about for a while. So maybe this is his favorite thing about Wednesdays. It's certainly his favorite thing about whenever day he has it. Um, the, the least appealing option, the pregnant, miserable, self-pitying loser pie, which is lumpy oatmeal with fruitcake mashed in and flambéed. I'm an oatmeal person, but in general, this is not my vibe. This is not. Never had oatmeal in a pie. No, I've never had a pie with an oatmeal crust, even though I feel like an oatmeal crust would serve something like a cheesecake pretty well. That would be amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Honestly? Yeah. 
Um, and then the one she makes in the kitchen with Nathan Fillion, the lonely Chicago pie with the mashed berries in chocolate. Of these, if you were at the uh, Jenna's little pie restaurant oh and seated at the counter, what's the one you're going to get a slice of? Probably the bear, the crushed berries with the chocolate crust, mm-hmm. or the That's lonely Chicago pie. Sensing that is the lonely here. Chicago pie. Oh, you mean the cho- the crust? No, there's two different crust. ones. Right, there's two ones with the crust berries. You're thinking, yeah, Earl murders me because I'm having an affair pie. Yeah, right, 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 right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to see what this tr- strawberry chocolate oasis pie is all about. I want to see what the fuss is about. So I'm ordering that one. I think. Although if I'm there early in the day, I'm not ruling out the the quiche with with uh, brie and smoked ham. That all sounds really good. In the real world, what's your pie order? Oh, gosh. See, I'm one of those people who, like, at Thanksgiving, I'm the one who, like, give me a sliver of this and a sliver of this and a sliver of this because I can't decide. I'm in a very pecan pie place in my life, I feel like now. Although the one thing in terms of, like, you know how you, like, you get a craving for something and you can't think of anything but like getting that one specific thing which sometimes fucks me up especially when i was living in new york and i would be like i want a slice of lemon meringue pie i don't oh, care I don't, about anything else it's Ugh. not for me it's when i'm in me. the mood for a slice of lemon meringue pie nothing else will do and so which sucks because like you then you go and you like you order something from the diner or whatever and it's like you go through the motions of like i guess a sandwich i guess a french fries all <laughs> i want is the pie um and so for some reason I can't find I like I can't seem to like just order a piece of pie because it feels like decadent and extravagant to just like bring me my piece of pie, um, you know, whatever. <laughs> um, but then it'll show up and they'll be like, they didn't have any lemon meringue. So I brought you like, you know, a s- piece of cake or something like that. And it's just like the one thing that I wanted. The only reason why <laughs> I made this order was for the lemon meringue pie. And they didn't get it. That has happened to me more than once. Um, what is your pie of choice? Um. I mean, the only store, like grocery store bought pie that I can abide is like a blackberry pie, and those never happen. They're yeah. they're a unicorn at this point. They they don't exist anymore. Um, I I mean, like berries, definitely. I lean towards that direction. Again, yeah. I am not a custard person. Um, if I'm gonna buy something from a store. This is going to sound so gross. I'm going to make my sister so happy because this is a thing that unites us. Uh, Hershey pies. Oh. Like Hershey branded cream like pies. Like at Burger King? Incredible. Like the one you can get at Burger King? Yes, the one you can get at Burger Those are good. King. The one you can have yes. it your way with. Yep, yep. I know what you mean. Um, I love that you're doing the Trixie Mattel hands when you're saying the chocolate pie. This is how much I love Hershey pie. <laughs> um, sometimes it can be a little bit too much, but like I also yeah. got to say... I love a meat pie, not a uh-huh. like, not the uh, pre-prepared store-bought where the gravy is like gray inside sure. pot pie, but a meat pie. I I feel like they're on their way back. They are going mm-hmm. to become popularized. I love. I mean, it's not really pie, but a shepherd's pie. Okay. I get that. My mom used to make us uh, a variation on a shepherd's pie, which was uh, essentially a pate chinois, which was a Chinese pie, which was essentially the same thing, which was uh, ground beef, creamed corn, mashed potatoes. Like those were the layers. And it was good. And it seemed disgusting, but it was good. Um, I should also <laughs> shout out my mom makes a delicious uh, apple pie that if I can 
impress upon her to do a Dutch apple topping rather than like the pie crust topping is maybe my favorite version of that. Um, apple I also, pies from a store are unilaterally gross, but if someone has homemade apple it in pie, their home, mm-hmm. delicious. Makes a big difference. Makes a big difference. I also, uh, uh, to expand our uh, horizon a little bit, an empanada, a little hand pie empanada <gasps> yeah. is... Oh, good. That is, of the things that I miss about New York City, uh, not being within delivery distance of Empanada Mama, which was my favorite uh, Empanada's restaurant in Hell's Kitchen, is so sad because they made such good Empanadas. Um, All right. Back to the awards run for this movie. Wait, before we move on from pies, though, because I do have a game. Oh, (laughs) did you make a pie game? I made a pie game for you, Chris. I made, uh, uh, so... One of the uh, fun little quirks of Waitress is her naming of the pies. I always, I find half of them are like reads of different, of, of mostly Earl, or just like where she's right. like running down her own life. And it's, they're all very, uh, you know, wordy and would probably look good on like a specials menu at a, okay. at a little pie diner with like, you know, extra quirk or whatever. So I went into the uh, annals of films, uh, films with notable pie moments or scenes or movies that are in some way notable for pies. And I'm going to have you guess them by, I gave them all little waitress-esque, Jenna-esque names. And so I'm going to give you, (laughs) I'll give you a first crack at it with one uh, name. If you don't get it from that one, you can get a alternate name for the pie. And if you can't get it from that, the third hint is the ingredients of the pie. Okay. All I need is the film. All right. Okay. Okay. Uh, And I have 10 of them, I believe. So this won't take too terribly long. All right. The very first one is Best Supporting Mississippi Mud Pie. Uh, The Help. The Help. Exactly. Exactly right. Uh, The AKA was Minnie's number two special pie. That is, of course, uh, Octavia Spencer's character in The Help, making a shit pie for Hilly Holbrook. One for one, Chris. Very good. Fantastic. Uh, your second pie, blueberry surprise pie with lard ass crust. Blueberry surprise. Yes. With lard ass crust. A pie. I don't know. All right. Your second option, the, the AKA, is coming of age Castle Rock campfire story pie. Oh. Okay, that is Stand By Me? Stand By Me. The, uh, oh, right, right. The blueberry surprise. Surprise, you're getting barfed on. All right. Um, yeah, Stand By Me. All right, your next one is Adolescent Seduction Apple Pie. This is American Pie. This is American Pie, uh, a.k.a. Wieners Don't Belong in Here Pie, uh, the ingredients being uh, apples and also Jason Biggs's dick. So, yes, American Pie. Very good. All right, next one. Your uh, pie name is Tooch and Tony's Showstopper Pie. <laughs> Tooch and Tony. That's got to be Big Night? Big Night. Stanley Tucci and Tony Shalhoub making uh-huh. the uh, tim- Timpala? What is that called? I think sure. that's what it's called. The big overstuffed Italian pasta pie uh, with uh, meatballs and ziti and hard-boiled eggs for some reason that looks tremendously good all right (laughs) next one uh fucking a fugitive fruit pie fucking a fugitive fruit pie so someone's on the run 
They might be gay because they're a fruit. Or there is some type of fruit pie. I don't... mm, I need another. All right. The AKA is we should probably do this movie on our podcast soon pie. Oh, okay. So maybe it's somebody who's recently nominated, but they are a fugitive and they are having sexual intercourse. Um, what's the ingredient? The ingredient is peaches. It's a peach pie. I hate peaches. Um, oh, uh, no, that's, I almost said, call me by your name. We couldn't do that. <laughs> There's no fugitives in it. Um, and I don't think they make a peach pie. There's peaches, but not a peach pie. Oh, I don't know. This is Labor Day. This is oh Jason yes, Reitman's they make peach pies. They, Labor Day. It's a sex scene. It's a about sex metaphor. Hands. Yes, it yeah. sure is. Sure is. All right. Next wow, one. I, missed, I can't believe I missed that. Pie name is you better work. Small town character actress pie. <laughs> this is too long. Foo. This is too long. Foo. Thanks for being Julie Newmar. First we bake the pies, then we eat, we the, eat pies. the pies, then we and go then we home. go home. Uh, AKA Ravishing Red Berry Extravaganza Pie. It is, of course, a strawberry pie. It is too Wong Fu. Thanks for everything, Julie Newmar. Very good. All right. Next one is Ballad of Bloody Revenge Pie. Uh, uh, is this Kill Bill? Is not Kill Bill. Uh, the AKA is probably should have cast a Broadway singer pie. Oh, no. Okay. Oh, it's Sweeney Todd. Sweeney Todd. Yes. yes. I wanted you to ask for the ingredients because I could have done said priests and lawyers and royal marines and pops and politicians. <laughs> uh, next one is Nora's sour divorce pie. Nora's sour. Oh, this is um, um, um. It's a Nora Ephron movie. It's it's complicated. It's not. It's complicated. Uh, AKA She's a baker. cheating husband, open faced cream pie. Oh, which one has infidel? It's not something's got to give. Oh, Nora Ephron. And, oh, God, I was thinking of the You're wrong. thinking of Nancy. You I was thinking of Nancy. Nancy. Um, Heartburn. It's heartburn. Heartburn. It is a key lime pie with whipped cream that Meryl Streep uh, shoves in Jack Nicholson's face. Also heartburn. don't do key lime pies. I like a key lime pie. If it's not too tart i think sometimes they they go overboard with the tartness and it just like burns sure, my sure, throat. Sure, sure, sure. all right next one muted english language debut pie <laughs> okay Ooh. muted english language debut so a chill movie that is someone's first movie they make in the english language i'm going to need an aka aka muddled and messy multiple grammy pie muddled and messy multiple a movie that won multiple Grammys. What's the ingredient? Blueberries. Okay, blueberries. Is it um uh, uh what's eating Gilbert Grape? It is not what's eating Gilbert Grape. It is a movie we've done on this podcast. With the movie pie. didn't win multiple Grammys, but maybe the star of it did win multiple Grammys. Oh, okay. Um, it's not an unfinished life. It's not also Holstrom's first. 
Is it blueberry pie? Blueberry. <laughs> that one might make it a specific time of day or blueberry evening. My blueberry nights. There we go. My blueberry Jesus nights. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Uh, and finally, uh, the Bard's Savory Sibling Pie. Okay, so William Shakespeare had a brother or sister. Wilhelmina Shakespeare. <laughs> Savory Sibling? I need an AKA. AKA Julie Tamor's Roman Revenge Pie. Oh, okay. Titus. This is Titus. Titus. Yes. That's also a people pie, right? Jessica Lang's sons are the ingredients in <laughs> the pie in Titus. Very good, Chris. You have done Thank you. That was very admirably. difficult. And uh, you made me uh, mix up Nancy and Nora. And for that, I should be flogged <laughs> in the street. Um, All right. What do we want to move on to now that you have uh, done so well at the pie game? Let's uh, let's just wrap up with some of the rest of the movie's awards run. It was nominated for Adrian Shelley's screenplay at the Independent Spirit Awards, nominated alongside Starting Out in the Evening, which was also a Sundance movie. Uh, The aforementioned Mike White's Year of the Dog, The Diving Bell and the Butterfly. Not sure how that qualified as a U.S. production. Uh Uh-huh. And the winner, uh, my beloved Tamara Jenkins, The Savages. It's interesting to track the sort of the 2007 journeys of some of these movies that like played Sundance together, Waitress, The Savages, starting out in the evening, Year of the Dog, all then move on to the Independent Spirit Awards. Some of them move on to the M4Gs. Uh, it's, it's, they, they travel like a pack. I feel, I remember it reminds me of, when I interviewed uh, Emily Gordon and Camille Nanjiani for the big sick that year, and they talked about sort of traveling in a pack with Jordan Peele and some of the other sort mm-hmm. of movies during that award season. And I imagine if it's movies that you started with like at Sundance in January and then like come the following February and you're still at the independent spirit awards mm-hmm. together, like that's gotta be really fun and interesting. Uh, it was also among the National Board of Review's top independent films, uh, selected among 11 of them. Uh, A Mighty Heart, the kind of forgotten Angelina Jolie movie that we could do if it was not a total bummer, mm, away yeah. from her. Great World of Sound, Honey Dripper, In the Valley of Ayla, not sure how that is an independent movie, unless mm. like maybe Warner Brothers bought it. Uh, I don't know. Once, also starting out in the evening, the namesake, The Savages, Our Waitress. Oh, wait, it's 10 movies, but they have In the Valley of Ayla in here twice. Because it's the the winner? Is that the deal? They have... No, that... it, they, I think it's an accident. It's in here. Oh, <laughs> all right. Um, yeah, an interesting lineup. Some really good ones in there. I really love Away From Her. I really love Once. I really love The Savages. Um... A Mighty Heart is an interesting movie. That movie had like a brown face controversy, right? At the time, it kind I mean, maybe it got really kind of dispelled because the woman that Angelina Jolie is playing has a really like kind of far reaching, uh, diverse 
background, background um, from her family heritage. But I think also she specifically selected Angelina Jolie to play her. Um, I do remember that. Correctly. Yes, I think that's right. Yes. Um, that was a movie that had a lot of buzz for Angelina Jolie when it was released in the summer, made basically no money, and that kind of killed that movie's chances for the rest of the year. In the Valley of Ella, by the way, was was a Warner Independent uh, movie. Oh, I've forgotten it was Warner, Warner Independent. Independent. I thought it yeah. was probably because I saw that movie at like a multiplex. So that's yeah. fully me misremembering. But I mean, it's you know Charlize Theron and Tommy Lee Jones and and whatnot. It is the <laughs> the follow up to the uh, director's Paul, best picture win. Paul Haggis's crash follow up, indeed. Yeah, my memory of In the Valley of Ella is that it is. 10 times better than Crash. Oh, it definitely is. I also remember that Tommy Lee Jones nomination was one of nomination. the more surprising ones too. That was one of the ones that like drew gasps when uh, they announced the nominees. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure because he was not, he had, he had been in like, he had a lot of advanced buzz. You know what I mean? Like that was mm-hmm. a lot of, you know, at the beginning of the award season, he was definitely part of that conversation. But I think by the time of the nominations, people had really sort of settled into the idea that like it wouldn't be Tommy Lee Jones. Most people thought it was going to be either Ryan Gosling for Lars and the Real Girl, Girl, <laughs> Lars and the Real Girl, um, uh, Work It Bake Lady, um, or Emil Hirsch for Into the Wild. Remember, mm-hmm. Into the Wild was like, into the Wild was expected to do like six nominations, or and it just like gets the Hal Holbrook nomination. Like it didn't even get the song right. Like it was supposed to be no. Eddie Vedder was going to be a song nominee, and that and didn't like happen. Into the Wild had like a SAG ensemble nomination. Sean Penn was going to get a Best Director nomination. Like everybody right. sort of assumed because Sean Penn at that point was a huge Oscar favorite, and still was. Like the next year, he would win Best Actor again. So like. It's not like the Oscars had like already fallen out of love with Sean Penn, but like for whatever reason, the voters did not cotton to Into the Wild, a movie that I think is actually pretty good. As I remember, I remember being underwhelmed by yeah. it. Like when when those nominations didn't happen, I remember feeling very much like, well, yeah, the movie's not as good as it, everyone thinks it. Is. Yeah, I liked it. I thought it was pretty good. Um, but then again, it was a while ago. Um. What else from this list? A couple of these ones I don't remember at all. Great World of Sound, I don't remember. I feel at like all. I remember that in name only. Honey Dripper. But the uh, I mean, National Board of Review will throw in a curveball sometimes in those. Yeah. Did we talk about the other nominees for uh, the M4G's supporting actor alongside Andy Griffith? Uh, let me pull that back up. I know that Tom Wilkinson wins. Tom Wilkinson deservedly so wins for Michael Clayton for excellent carrying of baguettes, carrying that big old bag of baguettes and also like pretty incredible performance. Uh, Philip Bosco for the savages, which was excellent performance. I remember that having like even more like Laura Linney ends up getting the actor nomination from the savages. But like, I remember at the beginning of that season, a lot of people saw Philip Bosco as a possibility as that sort of like, Again, it's the year after uh, Little Miss Sunshine. So I think people had irascible old man nominee mm-hmm. on the brain. And there were a lot of options this year. Philip Bosco was one of those like longtime character actors who I 
remember first ever seeing in like three men and a baby remember how he was <laughs> the cop in three men and a baby who was uh remember how like three men and a baby for a while devolves into a heroin smuggling subplot for like a good 20 Fucking minutes? wild movie uh he is cameron diaz's dad in my best friend's wedding oh shit you're right who uh who by the way business... i have three or four emails in my pending folder please send those for me before you leave who's just like i have pending emails just send my pending emails listen uh aol was crazy that was full aol email that this corporation was re- relying on back then this was the year of like old people nominees right like andy griffith philip bosco hell holbrook into the wild got a nomination for him for g's um, and then Homeun Urshadi for The Kite Runner, a movie I definitely saw and remember virtually nothing about. Could not tell you if I have seen The Kite Runner or not. Um, Massive bestseller that movie was, though. Like, that movie was, like, huge. That book And an Oscar huge. nominee. I think it got an original score nomination, but, like... Which is fine, because, like, I'm kind of, like, I would not relish doing that movie for this podcast just because I remember being very kind of... Yeah, it it was the type of thing that people would read a book about, but not go see mm -hmm, depicted on screen. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, because it just made kind of no money. That's a Mark Forster movie, right? Like that's his follow up to Finding Neverland. Finding Neverland. Yep, yep, yep. Indeed. That's why people really had were really high on that as a year ahead uh, Oscar contender. That was on all pretty much everybody's best picture predictions a year Mm -hmm. ahead of time a man from otto's own mark forster (laughs) man called otto like doing real well financially this season when the a time when like nothing's making money besides the blockbusters like a man called otto is raking it in and it's not necessarily true megan made a hundred million dollars oh i mean like Like, the end of two 2022 movies like january's doing pretty good megan's making decent money 80 for brady is gonna make a little bit of a profit i think Mm -hmm. um 80 for Brady just delivers. I mean, I was as cynical uh, as anybody going into that movie, but like that movie. Okay. Gets I will in there and does the work. See it, it's fun. I it's resented fun. these women having to shill for even just the name. I don't man. love, I don't like Tom Brady. I'm constitutionally opposed to that guy, but even it won me over the whole thing. Won me over. I have oh, to nice. say, um, not to spoil too much, but there is a moment early on in that movie where all of a sudden you get a look at Jane Fonda's wig closet. And I was like, well, all right, I'm in good hands. I, I, this, this movie knows what it's doing. Um, all right. So we want to move on to the IMDb game. Let's move on to the IMDb game. Listeners, Let's. every week we end our episodes with the IMDb game where we challenge each other with an actor or actress to try to guess the top four titles that IMDb says they are most known for. If any of those titles are television, voice-only performances, or non-acting credits, we'll mention that up front. After two wrong guesses, we get the remaining titles release years as a clue. If that's not enough, it just becomes a free-for-all of hints. We do love a free-for-all of hints. That's the IMDb game. All right, Chris, would you like to give first or guest first? Guess uh, I'm going to give first to All you, right. Let's uh, especially since we just closed with the uh, AARP movie for grownups uh, supporting actor lineup. I have chosen for you the winner, none other than the great Mr. Tom Wilkinson. Oh, boy. All right. Love that Tom Wilkinson. Okay. I will I'm say gonna... one of these I am positive is a voice performance though it does not say voice so we might is it see not an animated movie it's not animated 
Interesting. But I think that this is voice only. I could be wrong. I haven't watched this movie in a while. All right. I'm going to put a pin in that. That's an interesting clue. I'm going to put a pin in saying anymore because I'm not giving you clues before you even guess a single movie. No, but that one is, is, is necessary because it's, it's it's, right, right, right. I had to call nature. Okay. I'm going to guess Michael Clayton, Michael Clayton. Correct. I'm not as sure that in the bedroom will show up on there, but it's a possibility. I'm going to guess the best exotic Marigold hotel. Incorrect. Damn. Well, I guess I'll just have to talk about that movie for two hours sometime soon. Um, Maybe perhaps at some point in the future. Who knows? Who's to say? Near or far. Who's to say? All right. Tom Wilkinson, one strike. All right. Tommy, Tom, Tom. He's so far down the cast list in Batman Begins that like, I don't know, man. I don't know. Putting a pin in that one as well. Um, Big Tom. Big Tom Wilkinson. I am going to guess in the bedroom, I guess. In the bedroom is correct. Okay. All right. So two out of four. And fine. Batman Begins. Incorrect. Uh, Every time when you watch Batman Begins, it's just like he shows up as Carmine Falcone. Pizza uh, pasta. Chef Boyardee. And it's just like, what? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It it is uh, Bronx by way of uh, Boston by way of. uh, uh, Yeah. All right, Go give ahead. me my years. Uh, your years are 97 and 2014. The full Monty is 1997. It is, correct. 2014. This is the one that's a voice, maybe. Um, 2014. This is tough. I feel so, like it's possible he shows up for like a shot in this movie, but... I'm trying it's to get also, to the nature of what character would be maybe a voice in a non-animated movie. I Does feel like voice... if I say what this character name is, it's going no, to lead yeah. you there very quickly. Does he voice a robot? No. Well, I mean, maybe it's a robot, but it, the character name is not robot. The character name is not robot? But no, is the character like... name. I'll give you the character name. Fine. The character name is author. Oh. As in of a book. So he's maybe like doing the voiceover. Oh, I know what this is. He is in this movie. It's uh, um, uh, the Grand Budapest Hotel. It is the Grand Budapest Hotel. Yeah, he definitely does show up uh, briefly. Yes, Grand Budapest Hotel shows up for. I'm. It's gonna that nesting doll to... of a thing where like it's about Tom Wilkinson, but it's about Jude Law, but it's about oh, right, Marie right, Abraham. Right. Remember that whole? Yeah, I don't love Grand Budapest Hotel. It's not for as much as it's like the one that like finally broke Wes Anderson into the Oscars good graces. It's not my favorite of his. Like genuinely, it's the one I. It's not the one I will go back to the least, but it's like, it's not up there. I've me. maybe rewatched it twice since theaters, and it's really like a half hour after it's over. I couldn't tell you what it's about. Yeah, um, I also think it's like sometimes, like it's he doesn't always do this, but like that's the movie where I feel like Wes Anderson's sensibility is getting a little mean. Like there is something to where that movie goes in its last hour where it's just like people have know. made that accusation about others of his movies too but it's usually the ones that are more modern like, uh, like people have yeah. said about royal tenenbaums they've said it about rushmore yeah. and see i like i think those movies 
whatever, like for whatever reason, stay on the right side of the line for it. And there's something about Grand Budapest that feels a little nasty in a way that I don't love. But anyway, Grand Budapest, I just I ha- I can't find a way in to yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. Um, French all, Dispatch, I will say, underrated as maybe as much. I want to rewatch French Dispatch as Grand Budapest is to me oversold. I think aside from, or maybe since um, Fantastic Mr. Fox, I thought that the uh, um, final stretch of that, some of the stretches of that movie are some of the funniest stuff Wes Anderson has done. Even if people are Mr. Fox? Fantastic Mr. Fox is my favorite. But I think French Dispatch is some of the funniest stuff, at least since Fantastic Mr. Fox. Um, I see what you you mean. Yes, yes, yes. Tom Wilkinson's known for all Best Picture nominees. Oh, that's interesting. And he has more Best Picture nominees on top of that, I believe. Well, does he? Well, hold on. Now we're going to now we're going to go into that. (laughs) (laughs) Let's see. I'm willing to uh, uh, take a half a break. Selma. Selma. Yes. Very good. Um, Obviously, Snowden. That's picture nominee. (laughs) Um, Selden. Selma Grand Budapest. Um, Sadly, not Eternal Sunshine. Sadly not. Sadly not duplicity. I guess I guess uh Selma's the only one that we haven't mentioned. So five, oh, Shakespeare five. in Love. Oh yes, there we go. Shakespeare in Love. That's six. Sense and Sensibility. Seven. Nice. Yeah, I think that's it. That's pretty good. Yeah. Seven Best Picture nominees. That's a career, man. That's that's pretty fantastic. Good for Tom Wilkinson. All right. What a fucking legend. Let's get him an Oscar. Who do you have for Yes. Next? All right, so for you, we talked about uh, the Americans and how uh, Carrie Russell's husband, Matthew Reese, won an Emmy for that show. Somebody who won two Emmys for that show in the guest actress category was Margot Martindale. Oh, uh, DJ Margot Mart. Never done as an IMDb game. And so I am tasking you with the known for for Margot Martindale. How much TV? Um, none. No TV. Wow. No TV. All films. Paris Chatem. Paris Chatem. Same year as Waitress. Tremendous movie. She's the standout performance. Should have been an Oscar nominee for supporting actress that I year. I should watch that again. I don't love omnibus movies. Um, What would you feel about supporting actress for a part of an omnibus movie where you are the lead of your portion of the omnibus? You're not putting Marco Martindale as a lead for Paris Chatem. But doesn't it seem like a little bit dishonest to have no. her? No. If you're talking about the nature of the performance. No. Okay. I Maybe if the like, it's an omnibus movie where it's three parts. I could entertain four parts, but like, there's like eight sections of that movie. So you're a so you're a, a, a screen time uh, adherent. I see. Right. I am not. No, it's a very different thing. Very different thing. You know what you're I doing. Tricked, you're pushing I my buttons. I tricked you. I tricked you. All right. Yes. Um, Paris, you're time. August Osage County. August Osage County, because they all are. They all have August Osage County. Yes. Um, you got the two ones that you were more likely to get. These next two are pretty hard. Okay. Uh, if the hollers is in there, I am going to uh, 
disband this podcast. Um, you're very stone face right now. Is one of them the hollers? The hollers, yes. Oh my god, <laughs> she's a lead, sort of, mostly. Yeah, the hollers is not a real movie. <laughs> yeah, but there it is on okay. her known for. Um, on her known for. Wow, I could get a perfect score for you Margo get a perfect Martindale. score for Margot Martindale. Yep, I think that would mean that I would have to grand marshal a pride parade somewhere, <laughs> just right now. Um. Okay. Wow. The pressure. Mm-hmm. She's done so much. I feel like it would have to be. You're saying that it's hard, which tells me that it's either going to be a small part or a large ensemble. Maybe it's something where she has like a key line or it, it's it's just got to be like a big movie that like maybe we don't think of for her, but she's in it. What's a giant ensemble? That... No, it's Million Dollar Baby. It's a very good guess, but it is not Million Dollar God Baby. Damn it, I want that perfect score. I know. Um, no, but that's a good guess, but no, it isn't. Uh... Everybody looks at you and they laugh. <laughs> Everybody looks at me and they laugh. Um, okay. Wow. Okay. So Million Dollar Baby, which she has a prominent role and it is a Best Picture winner, is mm-hmm. not in the known for. It's got to be something big. But what is that? It's like, no, it's got to be... She's in some franchise. She's in like a Jurassic World movie or some bullshit like that. No, she's in a is she in a Transformers movie? That's Julie White. Julie White is in the Transformers movies. Um or it's like a Cohen's that she's randomly in. Here's what I will say without giving you too much of a hint. I think this is hard, but maybe I think that is because I've never seen this movie. Okay. Which isn't but to say... But you think I have? I actually don't know. This is a movie that people have seen. I just haven't. So maybe I'm underestimating either the size of this role or the memorability of this role. Because this is definitely a movie that like other people have seen. Talk about. And do talk about. Yes. Oh man, I think I'm just I'm gonna have to burn something. Um that you haven't seen. I feel like it is a franchise movie, and it's a dumb franchise movie. Because if you haven't seen it and you think I possibly haven't seen it, that's the only thing that equates to me. Um I just, I, I'm gonna just have to burn something off, so I'll just say I'll just say Secretariat. No, not Secretariat. All right, your year is 2007. The same year we're talking about. Okay, great. Yeah. Um, the same year as Paris Jutan comes out. So it's not an Oscar movie because I feel like you would have seen any of those. Is it Transformers? It is not. I don't know if she's in a Transformers movie. I feel like Transformers is 07. I forget. Um, uh, the first Transformers movie is 07. But um, okay. is it like Miami Vice? 
It's not Miami Vice. That was, I believe, 06. Um, okay. Yeah, what else was that summer? summer? Weirdly, she's also in The Savages. I don't remember her in that, but interesting. Big That's 2007. Oh, um, is it like Public Enemies? No, I believe that was like 09. Damn, I'm trying to think of summer stuff. What genre are we talking about? Comedy. Oh, okay. <sighs> like parody comedy. Is, is it a scary movie? No, no. What parodies was she in in 07? This is after, is she in Bruno? No, no, no. That would be after Borat. Um, What parodies were in 07? This is a movie that gets brought up anytime a movie of this genre comes out and is bad. And people are like, just go see X comedy movie. It's a better version of this. (laughs) <laughs> it's not movie 43 um no no it's a movie that's 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 liked quite a bit better than movie 43 oh uh, um, i know that i'm gonna feel embarrassed by this because i feel like i'm i'm reaching for a worse movie than what this is it's a movie that on its surface seems like it's super dumb and bad but everybody i know who has seen this movie is like oh this movie's like surprisingly really smart about its genre parody right I should probably see it. I don't know why I haven't seen it, but I would like just haven't. What starring an Oscar nominee for supporting actor from this same decade? From the same decade. Okay. Um, It's not like Jackass. Those aren't parodies. Um, also, and looping it, back, Margot Martindale should maybe have Bo- Bojack Horseman on her maybe. known for. Yes, maybe. Um, Both television and voice performance. Right. Um, uh, it is a parody of a movie that was also an Oscar nominee, also from that same decade. Parody of a Oscar nominee from the 2000s. Like, okay. parody of this movie's genre, but specifically, a lot of it is this movie. Oh, it's Walk Hard. It's Walk Hard. The Dewey. Cox I have story. not seen Walk Hard. I kind of thought you maybe haven't, um, which is why I thought it would be difficult for you. But yes, she plays Dewey Cox's mother in Walk Hard. Walk the Line was not a Best Picture nominee, by the way. No, but it was an Oscar nominee in the acting category. Oh, I thought you said. Oh, yeah. I just said you Oscar said supporting nominee. though. No, I said the actor was a supporting actor nominee from that decade, and it was also a parody of a movie that was an Oscar nominee uh, from that decade. Okay. Okay. Yeah. If you listen back to the tape, I was correct <laughs> on all counts. I was bulletproof in my estimations. All right, Chris started off like a house of fire with Margot Martindale. You almost made it, and uh, oh, so close. All right, that is our episode, though, listeners. If you want this, that is our episode, listeners. If you want more of this at Oscar Buzz, you can check out the Tumblr at this at oscarbuzz.tumblr.com. You should also follow our Twitter account at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz and our Instagram at this had Oscar buzz. If you follow either our Twitter account 
or our Instagram account, you will see Chris File being a dang fool about making Tilikum uh, uh, memes. Out You're of, the one uh, who called my big fat Greek wedding three my big fat Greek baby. So, and I stand by it. And I stand by it. <laughs> it should have been that. Should be the title. <laughs> yeah, but they're Not going to Greece in this one, so it should be my big fat Greek vacation. I would support that. Listen, you're the one who's now besties with me of our dollars on Instagram. So you should sure, uh, sure, reach sure. out and uh, and suggest to that title. It's not too late. Uh, Chris, where online can the listeners find you and your stuff? Uh, you can find me at um, Dumb Baby Pie. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, at Crispy File. That's F-E-I-L what? on Twitter. Dumb Baby Pie. <laughs> Dumb baby pie, uh, weirdest rap name I've ever heard of. Actually, it's like an early, it's like an early aughts like white rapper named Dumb Except baby it's the pie. pie symbol. Dumb baby, one word, one b. Yeah, right. Okay. Uh, I am on Twitter and Letterboxed at Joe Reed. Reed spelled R E I D. We would like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork and Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Mevius for their technical guidance. Please remember you can rate, like, review us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever else you get your podcasts. A five-star review in particular really helps us out with Apple Podcast visibility. So baby, don't you cry. We're going to make a pie. And while that pie is in the oven, you have more than enough time to write us a nice review. That is all for this week, but we hope you'll be back next week for more Buzz. <laughs>